Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Mercotti and I am delighted to be back on this sceptered aisle. Apologies regarding my absence last week. I'm sure you all had a nice time with, with Max Rushton. Although, funny enough, none of my guests today were there. Interesting that they should choose to have the week off when Rushton was there. I'm sure it's nothing personal. But here they are now, down the line, and he has moved up north, much to the uh, excitement of uh, many of our listeners in his catchment area. It's Rory K. Smith. Rory, uh, which part of the great north of England have you moved to? To Manchester. To Manchester, there you go. Manchester, of course, played an important part in the uh, Industrial Revolution, I'm told. And there's a ship canal linking Manchester and Liverpool, right? Those things are both true. We actually moved here because of the Industrial Revolution. And we also have Alison Rudd, who, who was born and raised up north. Born in Liverpool, I presume? Yes. And raised in, uh, in Lancashire, which is where Blackburn is. Yes. Well done, Gab. This is, this, is a, this is a geographical, magical mystery tour, I have to say. Well, we have listeners from all over the world on the Game Podcast, and I like to educate them, uh, and myself, about, about English uh, geography. So you were there, and then you moved down south at some point, right? And now you live in London. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. West London. to a lot of people, that. There you go. Well, some people, like Rory, go come down and then go back up. And you, Cass, Tony Cascarino, of course, my, my third, third guest, there's something sort of... I'm guessing Kent, Southeast London, Gillingham-ish about you? No. Well, my no? dad was from the Elephant and Castle. My mum was from Orpington and Kent. And I was born in Orpington and Kent. Orpington, which is near Sevenoaks. Um, it's closer to London, but clo- I would say more close to Bromley. Okay. Do you know Bromley? I know Sevenoaks because there was a big storm there. Yes. You know, I made a joke yes. about how, like, Seven yes, Oaks yes, and now yes. One Oak, and yeah. ha, 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 we all laughed. That was when you were a child, I presume, right? Um, no, that happened, well, I don't know, what year? I can't remember exactly, but it wasn't when I was a child. Okay, well, if you know when there was the big storm in Seven Oaks, please, please do let us know through Twitter because we're all dying to know. Now, 1987. Uh, 1987? Yeah, Michael Fish. Wow, I didn't even realise. I that knew was, it was a long time ago. That was Dave, the producer, who probably wasn't even born then, reliably telling us that it was 1987. Well, wouldn't have gone that far back, but yeah. There you go. All right, uh, coming up, uh, we're going to be discussing Chelsea against Manchester United, ticket price protests, plus the rest of the weekend's action. But there's really one place to start, and obviously that's at the Etihad. Right. So, fairy tale, blah blah blah. Matthew Syed said that it's the it's the greatest case. Uh, writing in the game today says it's the greatest case that he's ever seen of collective endeavor and the like. Mm-hmm. Cass, let's start with you. Leicester winning three one. Leicester with a five point lead at the top of the table with thirteen games to go. You've been in a team setting. Do we really overplay this sort of sum of all parts jazz? Or do we, or is it really just a case of 
they've generally gotten the breaks this season and they're not bad players and you know really the the mm. difference between the top teams and the other teams maybe isn't quite that break well I certainly don't think they've just got the breaks I think that as a team I mean they're Athleticism from midfield to forward line is incredible. I think the two boys in midfield, Drinkwater and Canty, are just relentless. Um, and obviously, we know about the boys up front. The obvious, you know, and I think there's a lack of disorganisation in the teams. You know, some of the bigger clubs. I think that's been quite clear. Their desire and hunger is there for everybody to see. And I wasn't surprised one little bit by Saturday. Before the game, I thought, how is City going to handle the running power of Leicester? Can they go toe-to-toe with them? And I kept coming back with the answer, can't. Too many players in City's lineup that can't do that. They won it comfortably in an embarrassing way in some respects because it was at the Etihad. And once Leicester got their running going, it was just one-way right. traffic. He mentioned the running power there, and it's interesting, it was running power athleticism. Obviously, it's, a, mm. it's an athletic pursuit. I, I kind of feel like in more general terms, when we when we talk about ingredients to... to, to to winning, there's, you know, obviously there's technique, there's tactical organization, there's there's athleticism, running power, for lack of a better word. I mean, are we are we kind of sort of coming full circle again? Is this really something that's so important? I I, I thought we sort of entered, you know, the age of of possession and or or, or even pressing, which obviously requires some level of. Um, of, of athleticism, a great deal of athleticism, if you will, but but Leicester, of course, don't press high up the pitch, so it's kind of it, it's not really the case with them. I mean, this to, to some people, this looked like tactical organization, defend and counter, and have a couple fast guys so that you can boot the ball up and and, and get something on the other end. Is it as simple as that, or it's the turnover ball? That's what it's the season of the turnover ball. It's the season of when you win it aggressively or with pace or whatever, or with pressing or however it is you win the ball. What Leicester do so impressively is make that transition from just harrying to the outlet ball is so intelligent. They, they, they it's, it's, it's machine-like. It's and it's they're committed to it as well. I don't know what it's like. It's like if you do anything wholehearted, it'll come off better than if you're hesitant. And that's what Leicester do. They take a huge risk when they try and play an intelligent ball on the break, but this seems to pay off. I think Alison's perfectly right. It is to do with, with how Leicester use the ball in transition, but. Football generally works in cycles. So you're quite right. We have had this sort of possession dominant sort of era, I guess five or six years, where everyone's thought, right, possession has to be, is the, is the key to success. That's now changing, and teams are pressing in sort of response to that, that desire to have possession. And all Leicester have done is taken it on an extra step, and they're playing in such a way that not only does it counteract playing possession football, it also counteracts pressing football because they are quite direct. And they bypass that press, so they break the press as well. It's, it's a natural development. And Ranieri, either by hook or by crook, has spotted it before others, and that's what's given them their edge. See, there's two things that... Oh, well, maybe maybe you can argue three, but they're, they're against every rule that we've been told in recent years. If you say possession is one, that you're meant to have more, and they, Leicester clearly throw that out of the window, because I think apart from Bournemouth and West Brom, Leicester have been second in possession ratings. They play two up front which, again, very few teams not meant to do in the modern game. And they'll play long balls. <laughs> they will do it very quickly, which, again, isn't meant to be the way. But they play it into areas all the time that turn defenders. I've, I've been astounded by how bad the defending is against Leicester and how the preparation to play Leicester, to me, has left me gobsmacked. I've got to be honest. Because Manchester City, what, how on earth, on earth can you press high against Leicester and have no midfield that can compete with the running power of them 
then you get on one in ones. And how many times have you seen a centre half try and nick in front of a Leicester forward to win the ball? Why are you trying to get in front of a uh, a pass to Avadi or Kazaki? Why are you trying to get in front of a pass? Are you saying you're, you're better off? You've off got them. to drop. Drop off you've them, got and to. then you're going to try to make Vardy and Okazaki, who aren't exactly where our Messi, yeah, try to beat absolutely. you on the ground. You don't. I've seen Ota Mendy three times on Saturday have a foot race with his shoulder to shoulder with Vardy. Why would you want that? How many times you've seen? I see Johnny Evans do it for West Brom. I've seen probably half a dozen players, defenders, who are trying to. Sacco did it with Liverpool. Did exactly the same. He gets in. Sacco probably could stay with. Well, he Vardy, maybe he but could, yeah. but you but don't yeah, want right. a foot race with Vardy. You nine times out of ten, Gab, you're going to come second best. You've got to be giving yourself an extra yard. I take your point. When, when you put it like this, right? The way to to do it is just rather than press high, just stretch your team, right? You just leave your defenders deep, and then there's no space. And no, then, the, when Vardy runs, psycholo- at you, he's but it's, at a, you. it's partly psychological. Villa defended well against Leicester at Villa Park but then they were in the deep mire of relegation and they didn't care that they were playing like an away team and that they had very little to prove except they didn't want to get slaughtered but but most clubs think probably not now but they were thinking well it's only Leicester and particularly if they're at home why do we have to respond to Leicester Villa did it well because they were they didn't care they just they they were desperate just just not to concede too many goals well, and I'm, they defended I'm, deeply and they defended with concentration and they defended well Hamilton and Bournemouth I mean obviously Mara's missed a penalty but but Bournemouth missed a penalty against Villa too that's a scary thing I just point out yeah but they're not, they're not makes, creating sorry? loads and loads of chances in those games and it's because Alison's quite right it's because if, teams sorry, are sitting sorry can I just finish my thought if Mara's makes both penalties then this is the scary thing. Then Leicester right now are nine points clear at the top of the Premier League. Let yeah. that sink in for a minute. No, absolutely. Although, having said that, if Mahrez draws both penalties, then maybe Leicester are treated differently by other teams in games that follow. So you, you can't necessarily assume that. Th- those two teams showed that if you are prepared to play Leicester and say, right, you, you know what, you are better than us. We are, not, we are going to adapt the way we play so that you can't play the way you want to play. Then they can be stopped. But I think the crucial thing with Leicester is that in Mahrez and Vardy, and to an extent after Zati and Albrighton, they've got the quality, if they need to, mm. to break teams down, even if they sit deep. Are we sure about this, what you just said? Because, all right, much as I love these guys, and I give you Mahrez does have a tremendous amount of quality. Albrighton, I'm not suggesting he's, he, he's a bad player, but as wingers go, most of us could probably name 10, maybe 20 in the Premier League. I mean, we're not talking about Eden Hazard here, mm. right? He's somebody who strikes me as somebody who, who kind of does the same simple things over and over again and, and, and does them well and is very careful and, and whatever else. I, I don't know that, that I agree with that, Rory, that if you, if, if, you sit, if you sit off them or if you approach this a little differently, they, they're necessarily going to have the, the quality to break you down. If you don't leave space for Vardy to run into, then surely he's not as good. Okazaki oh, no. does a lot of intelligent running, but... I mean, you expect top-level defenders, especially ones who cost forty-five million pounds, to be able to to marshal a defense and come up with a game plan to stop them. Yes, absolutely, and, and I, yeah. I, I quite agree with you. Albrighton is, for example, is is not a world-class winger, but you, he does he does what he does, and he does it well, and it's, it's relatively straightforward. You know, he, he beats a man; he's got two feet, good delivery, all that sort that sort of thing. I think if you sit back, that is a better recipe for stopping Leicester oh. than, than yeah. kind of pr- ignoring the fact that they, are, that they are top and this is how they play. Well, I, I agree. I'm sorry. When, when, you but, say, when, when you sit back, I'm not, I, I just want to be clear we're, we're trying to say the same thing, Rory. I don't mean the whole team has to sit back. I mean, rather than having what Arigo Saki used to call the short team, 
with a limited distance between your defenders and your strikers. You simply have your your your, your defense sit sit deeper, but you still have your front people on on the likes of of Huth and and Morgan because you still want to want to harry them and press them and defend higher with those guys, right? Yeah, but then the, I agree with you, Jab, and we are, but we are basically we're arguing slightly semantically about the same thing. Mm. But I think in that situation, what the reason that Leicester aren't that easily stopped is because in that situation, when you play the longer team, I suppose, as the, as the opposite to the short team, you then create that space between the defence and the midfield, which is what Mahrez exploits. They are players who are good enough that if you give, an op- give them an opportunity, eventually they will find a way through, I think. The one thing that also made it very easy for Leicester against City is that if you do do the high press and you try and get the defenders and you drop off, then there's an enormous area in midfield for space, which again, Drinkwater, Canty, were looking to expose against City. But Delph and Torre, especially, were nowhere near getting close to them two players. The amount of times in that game, the enormous area that if they could have done the press better, which I didn't think City done particularly well anyway, and then they drop off. That space in that area is always going to be exposed by Leicester because they can run and have great engines in that midfield. And that's the flaw that you, you've got to have better players athletically in midfield. You have okay, to. Okay, all right. But, that, but this, this touches upon what I mean, Cass and I we were talking about yeah. this earlier outside, Alison. This is some of the responsibility on, I think, has to go on, on Manuel Pellegrini. You know, it's mm. cruel to say this is why he's no longer, you know, he won't be back as the manager of City next season. But... It's kind of apt, the way I see it, is you go out there with Delph and Fernandinho, athletically, when they're fit and they're right, I'm sorry, they should be able to match Drinkwater and Conte. It's not like these are like superhuman beings who've time-traveled back from the future, right? You know, you can, we, can, we can pick on Yaya Torre and Yaya was being, had a bad Yaya day and whatever. That's fine. But those two guys, and I thought those two guys were absolutely... Terrible. I mean, the focus will obviously go on on, on Demichelis, and he was he was bad, and Otamendi was bad, and Zabaleta was bad, all this stuff, right? But I don't think it's unreasonable at this stage of the season to expect Manchester City to be able to put out two central midfielders who are both competent and fit and up for it. Surely, to some degree, that's on Pellegrini. And yeah, staff. yeah, no, they were too they were too posh to push, weren't they? Because Pelle- <laughs> Pe- Pellegrini's philosophy seems to be the law of averages, whereas we are an expensively assembled, classy team. When we click, we're unstoppable. That will see us through to the end of the season, and there will be blips along the way where it, they refuse to acknowledge who they're playing against most of the time. There's this sort of elitist approach to football, so it, it felt like you were watching two separate matches. You were watching the Manchester City playing the team they hadn't given too much thought about were Manchester City. And you were watching a team, Leicester, who had great faith in their ability to overcome a team they knew in advance would not try and do anything special or different to hamper them. And that just goes back to what I said earlier about when you face Leicester, are you prepared to accept they are a very, very good team and you have to think about tactically how you set up against them? I don't think right. Pellegrini thought that. We, 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 we've talked about City defensively just there with, with Alison, but Roy, attacking-wise, I thought back and I tried to see, all right, what, what is Pellegrini trying to do here? Because obviously... It's great that you want to play your game, but then, you know, your game normally involves Kevin De Bruyne, who obviously wasn't there. And so you're going to be playing against a well-organized, pretty deep-lying defense, and you want Huth and Morgan to be deep because you don't want them having to chase behind. And and so you look to David Silva to to unlock things, right? I mean, this is your creative spark. Right? You're going to unlock it two ways, either with David Silva or with Raheem Sterling making some kind of run and stretching and creating space, Right. Neither of those things happened, and I really don't. I really have to question 
David Silva, every time he looks up, all the passing lanes are congested. You know, the guy's human. I can kind of give him a pass. But Sterling, I don't understand what Sterling's remit was in this game. I don't understand what he was thinking, where he was going. Do you have an explanation? Beyond what Alison said, not really, no. I think that the, I agree with you. I think Silver in situations like that will have days where he can't quite pick the lock. And he needs help. And hmm. Sterling, whether, it's, whether it is that Sterling's given freedom and that's part of Pellegrini's kind of approach is that you are quality players, you're, you're expensive players, you're talented players, go and express yourselves. And he, he, he hadn't specifically given Sterling a set of instructions or whether it's that Sterling wasn't quite clear on what those instructions were or he didn't quite interpret them correctly. But... What I would say is that Sterling, this, this isn't the first time that Sterling's been relatively ineffectual in a game, in any game, not necessarily even against high-quality opposition. Sterling is still very much a hit and miss is a bit too harsh, but he, he has afternoons where he doesn't really make an impact on games. And I think that, that probably is something he has to learn to do more if he's to fulfil the talent that, that he definitely has and City have paid an awful lot of money to, to acquire. Pellegrini, for me, is underachieving with this group. There is no doubt in my mind that I look at the group as a whole and think, is the manager getting the best out of them? And I'd say, no, definitely no. Are they organised? Are every individual in that team well drilled of their jobs to do in a football game? And again, I would come to no. I'd also look at them and I said to Alison yesterday, they don't look fit. Now, they look like a club to me or a training ground where they go in, they train, they come home, and they, that's it. It doesn't look like a real hard basis of work. I looked at Delph and I thought he didn't look fit at all. He looked like he's gone from being an incredible dynamo midfielder that's gone to can't get around the park. Now, I could associate that with a number of City players. I could say Sterling doesn't look as sharp as he should do. You know, and I think he doesn't know really know his job. Well, Sterling's played a lot of games. Delph hasn't, obviously, because he was no, injured earlier. No, but you could go through the whole right. time. I was at Paul Zabaleta at right back. I know he hasn't played, but he looks so far off the base. Oh, I felt sorry for him. I felt you've been thrown in at the deep end here. You think here. there should be questions asked about the, the, the fitness coaching uh, the, as well? The fitness of that team was well yeah. below. Now, you can't take on Leicester and not be fit, in my opinion. Whether it was injuries or not, physically they were well short of even getting near them. You're right that Pellegrini's under, underachieving with City. But also I think Le- what Leicester do in a broader sense is they highlight kind of a lot of the truisms about football mm. that we, we hold, to be, hold to be correct aren't necessarily always right. And th- there's been examples of this in other countries in the last 10 years. Stuttgart in Germany, Montpellier in France, teams like that. Atletico Madrid to a certain extent in, in Spain. But I think what Leicester do, and, to, and Spurs as well to be honest, is they actually highlight how, what's the word, not conceited, but kind of Oh, I've completely forgotten the word, but the, the fact that other teams are not performing to the to the level that they should be, they make Leicester make make everybody else look bad, and we've concentrated a lot on this year on the romance of Leicester, and quite right, quite rightly, because it's a wonderful story. But there is another side to it, and that is the embarrassment that all of the big teams—City, United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool—everyone probably apart from Tottenham should be feeling, because what Leicester is showing is that this idea of you have to acquire all of the best players, you've got to spend money, you've got to do this, that, and the other not necessarily true and there are ways around it so uh, I spoke to Diego Torres who's a, journal, a journalist in Spain yesterday for a little thing that's in, in the paper today and he said that the, the reaction amongst Spanish clubs and this hadn't occurred to me to, to Leicester's story isn't kind of this terror that even the mid-table Premier League teams now are really really strong have got really good players the Spanish clubs are looking at it and thinking well the, the English have taken their eye off the ball completely mm. because the big sides have not been able to keep up with a team that is just doing simple things well and the big teams are so preoccupied with other stuff, making money, ticket sales, mm. all, that, all that business, signing official noodle partners, that they haven't 
kind of they've kind of forgotten the fact you have to get a team together that works together, that understands each other, and let them grow together. Right, Chelsea and Manchester United. Obviously, we all expected, I think, more from uh, um, from both of these teams. No, we didn't. No, they yeah, were much better. It was a much better match than I thought it was going to be. Cass no, said to I'm me before talking... it kicked off, "It's going to be nil, nil, and rubbish." Well, uh, I'm talking this season. I was pretty bored I'm, for quite a while. Yeah, I'm talking this season. I'm not talking this specific game. And what I was going to say <laughs> uh, before somebody jumped in was that I thought the first half was pretty icky, but then the second half looked a lot better, and I thought United looked better. They looked, you know, they're coming off two wins. Are they turning a corner, Alison? No, they're not turning a corner. They've been they've been going on a pretty straight line all season, haven't they? I don't I don't no, I had they... this I had this argument with Martin Tyler on Friday actually. He, I was saying, "Oh, what, what are you Name doing? Dropper. What are you doing previewing a mid-table clash?" And uh, he said, "Oh, well, you know, United they're back in, they you know, they're they're close to the top 4, they're, you know, they're back on track." And I said, "No, they're not because they beat a week. When, when Stoke are rubbish, Stoke are really rubbish at the moment. They are they were so, so hot good and cold. At the They're so hot and cold, Stoke. So beating Stoke doesn't mean anything. And beating a lower division opposition in the FA Cup doesn't Your mean Paul very Clement much Paul Clement won the Champions either. League. Derby are not in the Premier League. I think if you, point, say, if you were to say, if you were to say, if you were to say, United really have got back on track. They've turned a corner. And Chelsea, Chelsea are so conservative ridiculously conservative. They have a team with nothing to lose this season. They, they could really well, go all out. They can, they're not going to get relegated, are they? They could go out and all out and try and entertain their very disappointed supporters if, at home if they wanted to, and they don't. This was set up for United to exploit a team that's still, still recovering from an appalling defence of their title. And I didn't think this was a corner turned at all because United started nicely in each of the two halves. And then became uh, conservative, and uh, they seemed to lose concentration. And um, even even Chelsea sensed it, and, and I thought ended up playing uh, the better football and looking the team most likely to win. So I don't think there's a corner turned at all. They're a pretty dull team with some very good players in it. Gorgeous goal from Lingard, but I don't. Does that? Does that doesn't? Every team's capable of scoring a gorgeous goal. It doesn't mean anything. Right. I sort of agree with Alison in the sense that I think she, I need to do more. But I was struck by what Louis van Gaal said after the game, when he kind of absolutely demolished the actions that led to Chelsea's he demolished his players and the actions that led to the Chelsea's equaliser. And he's not the only one. I mean, Henry Winter, writing in our paper, also went and you know suggested that it's van Gaal's fault for putting on Depay instead of Lingard because Depay gives the ball away. And then if anybody watched Jason Muhammad on uh, Match of the Day too, and I might have been the only one, where it shows how everybody's out of position and, and and Chelsea go back up the other end and score. But I also kind of feel that maybe that's a little bit harsh in the sense that on Diego Costa's equalizer, there were maybe like eight different mm-hmm. individual errors and Depay just lazily knocking the ball into space. I don't think it's that big a deal if everybody else kind of does their job, which didn't happen. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there is one crucial mistake, isn't there, with Costa's equaliser, and it's the it's the slip. That that is the, the no, one. no, no. Sorry, not just the slip. It's, it's the fact yeah. that he pulls out yeah. rather than dropping off. Yeah, but Martin even, Keown highlighted that on television. Like, you can go on about the slip, but and and then planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Daily, Daily Blint took, you took responsibility for it. I thought it was terrible. There's yeah, also the that, fact that, that Chris was, Smalling is over in another postcode as well when that happens. But sorry, go ahead. But the, but the main mistake, that, that goal, as you say, it, A, doesn't happen, certainly in that way, if, if Blint just remains behind Costa. But it, it also possibly doesn't happen if Blint doesn't slip, just eat, eat and then recover. So I agree with you. I, why Depay is being singled out? Well, I'd, I'd say it's, it's baffling, but it's not. It's because there is a, a feeling about Memphis Depay that he is not a particularly uh, assiduous professional footballer and that this fits in with this kind of this impression of him we have got. Now, that, that goal happened, ultimately, because Blint rushed forward and then fell over. That's why that goal happened. There is, there is, there's no reason particularly to look for, for further explanations. But I, I've got to admit, I agree completely with Alison. I think it's baffled me this season. Every time United win a game, and it, it's not just the media, the, t- the temptation is always to say, oh, it's the media building it up, it's the media building it up. Van Gaal does it himself, says, oh, you know, now we are still in the title. He said they were in the title race, as, as, I think, as recently as the middle of January. And they, they, they have basically been the same team all year. They occasionally play quite well, as they did against Stoke. I agree with Alison that for a team that gets a lot of um, sort of lionisation, Stoke are capable of being absolutely awful at times. But th- this is what United have done all year. They've been the fifth best team in the Premier League pretty much all season. They're not great to watch. They have their moments. They're not turning corners. They're just going very slowly right. along the same path. And I think that to look to look at them, and uh, whether we're hoping they'll turn a corner, whether we feel that they, they ought to turn a corner at some point, because of the players they have and the reputation they have, I don't know. This is just United. Cass, but, I'm going to get you on, on, on John Terry because he came out again, obviously, last week. He gave this little spiel. and was kind of overshadowed by the Pep Guardiola news as it happened. You know, where basically he came out and he said, well, you know, it looks like I won't be here next year. I've been offered a contract. And then Chelsea reacted by saying, well, well, we just simply haven't decided yet because we don't know who the manager is. I kind of feel like Chelsea's stance, personally, that Chelsea's stance is kind of reasonable that, but that maybe Chelsea are going about a slightly ham-fisted way. What you say to John Terry, you say, like, listen, you're going to be part of the future of this club. If you want to keep playing, it might not be here, but we're going to have you come back and you want to train up, you want to coach, you want to do this, you want to you know, make him feel important, mm. right? Mm. Which is basically what they didn't do with Frank Lampard. Mm. Terry kind of went back to it again after this game. It kind of feels like, all right, you've said your piece, you've made your point. Does he, well, what's your reading of this? Is he just trying to turn the screws on the club so that, you know, target Abramovich's heartstrings and assuming you can find them and say like, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> it's only 130 grand a week, come on. It, it feels strange that, Terry's had to go with a begging bowl and it's not just this year, he, he sort of did the same last year didn't he, where he wasn't offered till late on and Mourinho came out and then said he would be offered a new deal it feels quite kind of strange, I mean for me, it'd be a strange decision to let him go because I still think he's Chelsea's best defender. You know, he still does his job very well. He plays a lot of games. I think he plays his 27th game this year, which is a lot of you know a good return for someone who's just 35. Um, I think you can make the mistake of not utilising what Jim John brings to the table, but it has to be. It can't be a contract on sentiment. It has to be first and foremost how well you play and be in the first team. And you think based on that he's earned? I think he's played well enough to be yeah to be earned another but year's. What contract. do you make of this John, of, of him going back going public I think now John's twice? Just, I think John's just being a little bit about me, isn't he? You know, you can't blame him for that. We all have a go at clubs when you know clubs do things for their reasons that benefits the football club. You know, we'll say why they shouldn't do it. 
you know, but with players, we question them every now and again. Now, I, I don't question John Terry for going to the club and asking why, because most big players at football clubs will have their deal done in January. They would be, he'd have some idea of what would be happening. That's clearly not happened. There's been no dialogue and a lack of communication, which John is pushing. Now, if we blame him for that, because he wants to stay and I mean, I think it's quite honourable. Most people would be going, do you know what? I'll go China for a year. I'll go and get 10, 12 million quid there. He's, he's actually saying, I want to stay. Is that that bad? Because he says he wants to stay. Right. I want to uh, give you the final word on this. One way to, to read this is a little bit like the way I read United not doing anything in the transfer window other than bringing back Yanazai, which was they don't know who the manager is going to be, so they're not going to commit money. And that's perfectly reasonable. Is that is that what's going on here, or do you think Terry's kind of digging himself a little bit of a hole? It's an interesting one with Terry. I think Cass is right that, that it's odd that the club have always been seemed so reluctant to kind of tie down this this kind of huge iconic figure that they've got in John Terry to a long term contract or not. And, and I, I also agree with what you said that there is an easy if you don't think he can play again at this level next season, then you you can sort of manage this situation you can smooth it out you can say look we understand if you want to keep playing but maybe it's best if you know you, you go somewhere else and do that for the final year or two don't have a payday in china don't have a payday in, in in the states or whatever it's weird the way that chelsea have handled it i think terry's own kind of method is slightly odd as well that he he brought it up he made it public which to me makes me makes it look like it's a it's basically a, a, a negotiating gambit that he is saying look i'll go public with this the fans will kick off at you and you'll have to offer me a contract because I can't possibly leave. I have a, a measure of sympathy with Chelsea because I think that players age, and ultimately, no matter how iconic the player, you have to accept that. Liverpool had it with Gerrard. At some point, you have to say, you're holding us back. You're not part of our future. You have to become part of the past. But right. at the same time, I think, I think the way that Terry's done it, making it public, is ever so slightly at odds with his reputation as a man who, who has the best interest of the club at heart. All right, in our debate this week, if you watched Liverpool's game against Sunderland, you will have noticed that minute 77, a chunk of the support left in protest, and it's to do with uh, with ticket prices. And so we have um, with Tony Barrett with us to kind of explain the background to this. Tony, how are you doing? Not bad, Gav. You okay? Very well. Basically, there's been a 13-month-long process where uh, all the ticket prices in the, in the stadium were assessed uh, and that was subject to a uh, scrutiny from a, a supporters committee that, that that was democratically elected and at the end of the process the committee came out and said that the basically they could you couldn't they couldn't approve the ticket prices they they were absolutely opposed to them uh, despite the club's position on it uh, so that that internal machination set the tone for what followed but I don't think anyone even from that point when you knew there was there was internal disquiet. I don't think anyone would have predicted the, the scale uh, of the protest that took place on Saturday. It was, I, I mean, I know that the TV pictures captured and, and media reports, social media and the rest, but to actually be in the stadium for the, probably from the 70th minute onwards when there was there was a succession of protest songs, uh, and, and which culminated in a, in a chorus, you never walk alone, and, and then to hear that number of seats basically uh, go up and, and see that many people leave the stadium. It was, it, it was an incredible spectacle. It was, it was depressing in some ways because this is the exact opposite of what football supporters want to do. They they save their money, they use their wages to, to watch their team, to follow them, and, and they they want to be there to see their team win. And with Liverpool two 0 up, 
probably more than ten thousand at Pooceport have left the ground. So it was it was it was it was an incredible sight. It was something that, that I've never seen before in an English ground, certainly not that scale anyway. And and now we're in a situation where where Liverpool have to make a decision: do they do they back down? Do they do they stage a review and accept that they've been wrong on on some of these ticket prices? Well, did he stick to the guns? And, and that obviously would raise the possibility of a fair protest. Basically, Liverpool F- Football Club sit down and they figure out, right, let's review all our prices and our packages. And I think they pointed out that there's a couple tickets which are actually going to be cheaper next year. Others are going to be more expensive. And But then they said they volunteered. You said there was a democratically uh, elected sort of representatives from the fans. They, they voluntarily submit to this fan group that gives them an opinion on it, a non-binding opinion, I presume? Yeah, basically that they would involve the process throughout so the discussions. Is this normal for, at football clubs in England? Do you, it's do you know? not, but, but, but basically when when FSG came into Liverpool, uh, the, the spirit of Shankly were, were very vocal as a group and, and what uh, FSG decided to do was, was basically create another group that wouldn't be them that they would then view it because they recognised the power of, of spirit of Shankly and what what role they played in, in unseating Hicks and Gillette, so they created another group, uh, a supporters committee, which was, as I say, it was subject to democratic elections. And within that, they then created a ticket subcommittee, which and they were they were involved throughout. There were, there were heavy discussions at a, at a local level on, on ticket prices, and, and the ticket subcommittee made up a support. Basically, said to Liverpool, you shouldn't be increasing any prices. Uh, and Liverpool came back, and I, th- I think this figure is 36% of prices increased, which at the time of the new TV deal is a tough sell. <laughs> it's right. a tough sell for any club, but in a city like Liverpool, where, where uh, it is one of the most deprived in the country, it's, it becomes even more difficult. And it does. The, 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 I think the sports committee said that the, the new prices were morally indefensible, and and that's obviously where the process grew from. I know it's really difficult because Liverpool, like most football clubs, probably have a million price categories and, and whatever else. You mentioned 36% of the tickets are, are increasing. If if I were wearing my Liverpool hat, I might say, well, nearly two-thirds of ticket prices are unchanged. There's a lot of focus on that £77 figure. I guess that's the most expensive ticket. I guess non-corporate hospitality. But then again, I also saw that that only applies to 1,200 seats throughout the season, which, you know, given that Liverpool play 19 home games, you know, you're, you're not talking about a large number of tickets per match. You're talking about, what, 60 tickets? Yeah, Liverpool could make the point, like, I could games. give those to a, to a bunch of rich Norwegians and then cross-subsidize other tickets and then make those nine-pound tickets which for kids. Which are, I mean, it's very complicated. I'm wondering, has anybody come up with an actual with an actual figure that makes sense to explain this? Like maybe, like for example, if you take the, 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 the total projected increase and divide it by the number of season tickets sold, is the average season ticket price going up and by how much? No, no, no one's done that, which is probably a good idea. God, that would probably be something I should do. The, one of the ways that it's been phrased is that it would leave Liverpool with the third most expensive cheap season tickets in the country. So that I would imagine, and I haven't checked this, that only Arsenal and Chelsea will be higher. Uh, so it, it, there is there is an increase. There is there is clearly an increase. The, I, th- I think what you have to do is is you have to leave out the seventy seven pound tickets and also the nine pound tickets because they are so few in number. There are, as right. you say, twelve hundred seventy seven pound tickets, and I think it's fifteen hundred nine pound tickets, uh, <laughs> which, which apply to three category C games. So, so it's fifteen hundred tickets spread over three games. So, yeah. so both ends of the spectrum. You say, let's forget them. 
the, the issue is the number of tickets that then have gone up from £52, say, to £62, and season tickets that have gone up from £919 to £1,016. It, it is those, it, it's those, probably the mid-level tickets uh, in the best seats in the stands, either side of the halfway line, so it's the main stand and so to the stand, those in those seats. And traditionally, they are people who've, been, who've moved from the coppers, they've got older and no longer want to sit, shout and sing, who've moved into those seats and got older in those seats, and they've been there for many, many years. If, if, the interesting thing for me about the protest was everyone thought it'd be young hotheads. That would that would be how people would want to characterise it. But it, in reality, if you looked at there's a lot of people leaving with white hair, and that is because they are the ones who've been in those seats who are about to either pay uh, an incredible increase for, for seats they've had for a long, long time, having supported them all their lives, or they'll have to move to other areas of the ground. So, so that is where it's at. It's, it's, it's the feeling of people being disenfranchised and a gentrification of, of, of the one stage in that you wouldn't really want to gentrify. I'm assuming nobody wants to come out and make the case that Liverpool fans really are customers and FSG have every chance, have every right to go and push them, blah, blah, blah. We all kind of generally appreciate the subtlety there. So Tony said something. He said, like, oh, I thought I'd never seen a 10,000 people walked out. I come from a different footballing culture originally, and I thought to myself, well, I'm kind of surprised that 75% of the fans still sat there on their seats. And to me, if your fellow supporters walk out over ticket prices and you sit there and you're like, then either you really want to make a stand and say, all right, you guys are silly. Liverpool should charge us more because that way we can go and buy more better players. Or you just can't be bothered. And I thought that was really disappointed. I, I, again, I'm, I'm sure in a minority of one here, but I looked at it and I said, you know what? The only people who should have still been there at the end are the Sunderland fans and those who genuinely believe that the ownership is, is justified and they disagree with the protest. Well, the fact they stayed, that number of fans stayed, is a very good example of why when you talk about pricing at football, it's not, it's not just about market forces, that there is something different at work because there's a contract between the fan and the club and most fans think... If they're in the stadium supporting the team, that is what they do. That's it does appalling. not matter. It does that not matter. It does not matter if the team are playing badly. It does not matter who the manager is. It does right. not matter what the result is. It does not matter how the referee's behaving. They do not believe you leave the team, and that is. It's not. It's not. It's not like if you go to the theatre and the lighting's rubbish and mm. the actor you came to see has a sore throat and the understudy hasn't turned up, and you think, well, I can't be asked. I'm going home. There's something different going on with football. And I, I don't think you can conclude that the fans who stayed didn't care about the issue. I think the overriding emotion was one of, I'm here to support my team. And there may have been some fans there who are not really part of the cohort of Anfield. They have just paid 350 quid to sit there because they're on a tourist package and they don't even know what's going on. In other countries, and it's not a criticism just of the English, but it's, there is something about English football fan culture that, as Alison says, is, you, you know, you're there to support the team, that's kind of your job. The fans have this incredible power, and they defeat themselves, or not even they, we defeat ourselves at times by doing things like other, fans of other clubs mocking Liverpool fans for walking out. They're protesting against ticket prices. Every, that affects everybody at every club, top of the Premier League to the bottom of, 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 League, of League Two. You see people drawing the connection between the fans not the fans not staying and Liverpool drop, dropping two points and conceding two goals. 
that surely is, is kind of just reinforcing this idea that mm. you have to stay and support your team. You have, to, you have to make a stand at some point. Fans have an incredible power. And what people in Germany and Italy and Spain to an extent realise is that football is a visual spectacle, especially on TV. That's the Premier League's whole power base. Is it sells this product that looks important, that has this sense of occasion to other countries. You don't have a sense of occasion in an empty stadium. Fans do have a power, but too often... They allow themselves to be told, you have to stay and support your team, and if you don't buy the tickets, somebody else will buy it, so we don't really care, so you better come. Well, that... fans, have to, fans have to, and it's not for me to dictate to fans, but there has to be a point where fans say, actually, no. do you know what, we, we are going to use this power. Right, how about some quick hits? Arsenal show that maybe they don't feel like collapsing after all. Uh, they go to Bournemouth and they win 2-0. Cass, is this significant? Well, I thought it was a very pragmatic performance. They got their goals in quick succession. And I thought they were really just solid. You know, he made a couple of changes before the game. He left that Walcott. Chamberlain came in. Mertesacker, likewise, was not in the side. And I just felt that it was something quite refreshing to see Arsenal could go and get a result in the manner they did against a very good Bournemouth team. They did all the things that we said that Wenger can't do or want to. Newcastle beat West Bromwich Albion 1-0. And coupled with Norwich losing at Aston Villa, that means they're out of the bottom three. Rory, it's as good as time as any for you to tell me who's going to go down and why. Uh, Villa, despite the, right, the recent improvement, Norwich because they can't defend, and then one of the northeast clubs, which I suspect will be Sunderland. Spurs, of course, are in second place after edging Watford 1-0. Apparently not since the days of Bill Nicholson have they been so far up the table so late in the season. Alison, have they been getting enough respect this season? Talking from the population at large, and you, of course, predicted they'll win the Premier League. Indeed. Uh, yeah, it's 55 years since, and that's partly why, partly why they don't get the respect they deserve. I'm, this is a confession. I asked Pochettino the most stupid question a journalist has ever asked anybody in the history of journalism. I said to him, do you think it's false that an institution is capable of an inherent characteristic? Not even the guy who helps him translate could bother with that one. My point, my point was: Does he feel that it might that there's something about Spurs that stops them succeeding? And in fact, the fact he didn't understand the question, but that's because he's not English, and the, and the fact that he just refuses to accept there's any historical relevance uh, means that he might just have what it takes to get them to win the title. Liverpool go 2-0 up at home against Sunderland, and then it all falls apart with the Simon Mignolet horror show, and they have to settle for a point. Cass. Is this all Miggs's fault, or do you want to spread around some more blame? Well, he's got to take a large portion of the blame because, first of all, for Adam Johnson's goal, where was the wall, and what, how do you direct a wall to be in the line that clearly left an enormous space for Adam Johnson to put it where he did? Now, so And then, obviously, not make the save. I said to someone the other day, Liverpool aspire to want to be a Champions League team, or regular. Is Mignolet one of the best four goalkeepers in the country? My answer is the same as is Tim Howard at Everton, I'd say no. And that's why I don't think Liverpool can make it. But if I were to ask you, are Fraser Forster and Jack Butler, you'd probably say yes. Probably. Palace draw 1-1 at Swansea and get their first point of 2016. Rory, does this signal an imminent turnaround so that Pards can become everyone's darling again? Or is this pretty much their level? Yeah, Pards for England has sort of juddered to a shuddering halt, hasn't it? Um, I, yeah, I think with Pards' teams, they're streaky. He... He wins lots of games in succession, then he tends to have these barren runs. Palace will, will finish sort of 9th, 10th, 11th, somewhere like that. And that's pretty good for Palace. So it's still been a good season, even though it has obviously all fallen apart a little bit. 
We need to talk to some of those like analytics nerds that we know, see if they can come up with an actual reason why a team would be, why one team would be streakier than another. Well, obviously we both know, Dab, that, the, uh, that form doesn't exist, does it? There is no such thing as form, that's right. There is no such right. thing as form, it's an obstacle illusion. But yeah, no, that would be interesting. Does it, if you looked at Pardew's career, it has happened throughout. Southampton beat West Ham 1-0. They've taken 13 of a possible 15 points in the past five games. If the season began on three Kings Day, they'd be top of the table. Um, They're up to seventh, but they can even go higher, can't they? Allison, I believe you have a soft spot for the Saints. I'm going to ask you, what is their ceiling? Manchester United and fifth place are just four tantalizing points away. And you just know that Koeman would love it if he finished above of LVG. And that is exactly what he's going to do. Yeah? I think they'll finish at least fifth at the expense of United. All right. At the start of the season, I had them as top four, Southampton, and their um, their blip has probably cost them that. But um, I have faith in Ronald Koeman. He's an astonishingly good manager. Between Ronald Koeman and, and Sammy Lee, I'm assuming there's a whole little cadre of ABUs there, right? ABUs. Anyone but United? Oh, no, I don't know. No, it's not. It's not. They're not. No, ABLs, their force does not Louis? come. Their force does not come from negativity. No, come no, from positivity. No. Gab, one for you. I hear Gary Neville was having a rough time at Valencia, but how bad is it? It's really bad. They 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 lost again. They lost to Betis. Uh, uh, he hasn't won a league game yet, and of course, in midweek they played a team called Barcelona, and uh, they lost seven nil, and would have been eight nil if uh, if Neymar had converted his penalty. This is just kind of going over all the caveats about why he should not have taken the job back in the day from the fact that Peter Lim is his friend, from the fact there was an injury crisis, from the fact that it's very, very tough fans, from the fact that unfairly, I think, but the local media see this as kind of like, oh, Gary Neville wants to learn to how to be a manager. He's come here and he's doing his apprenticeship. That would be tantamount to, I don't know, Raul lock, you know, rocking up at Liverpool and saying like, oh, look, I don't speak the language. And well, does speak English, by the way. And saying like, but yeah, I, I'm going to do this between the end of the season because, uh, uh, you know, John W. Henry's a good mate of mine. And I hope to learn a lot here. And, uh, you know, let me get my brother to, you know, I, he made it so, so difficult for himself. There's a good piece by Matt Dickinson. Obviously, Matt, quite close to Gary Neville, which sort of shows things from Neville's perspective. I think he's going to learn a lot, but he's got to be, I think, careful between now and the end of the season just simply because... He could really be tarnished in ways that I think are unfair to him even. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many, many thanks to my guests today. Rory K. Smith, Alison Rudd, Tony Cascarino, and joining us from the Republic of Merseyside, Tony Barrett. Please press that subscribe button. We're going to be back next week. And remember, you can get exclusive football highlights free as part of your subscription. It's just £12 for a 12-week trial. Just search The Times online. Till next week, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.